Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. If you want to become a millionaire, you got to start making million dollar decisions. If you hire a lot sooner, if you start asking for help and start betting on yourself, those are the things that are going to make your, your path to becoming a millionaire a lot faster. Rachel Rogers is a multimillionaire, CEO, and best-selling author who helps regular people build their wealth and become financially free. If you want to build wealth just on your labor, you're going to burn out before you ever get there. Whatever is most important to you, Stop waiting because tomorrow is literally not promised. You are making over eight figures in your business, over $10 million. What are the three steps that you want them to follow to become a millionaire? Ooh, I love this question. So step one is... I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. If you're a small business owner or side hustler, you have many roles and responsibilities within your business. Trust me, I've been there. From creating products and working with customers to crunching down numbers, it all comes down to you. That's why you need an app that organizes your customer information in one place and improves your customer communications too. The Index by Pinger app does both with simple text-based tools to run your business. You get a second number to separate your personal and business calls and can automate appointment bookings, send invoices, review requests, and more with just a few clicks. If you can't answer your phone, Index can send the caller a professional branded text message with your logo and links to your website automatically. Index's shortcuts and text templates make interacting with customers faster and easier. And tags, notes, and name ID let you serve customers better and win those five-star reviews. The Index app just makes it easier to do your business. See how the Index by Pinger app can help you manage your business at erica.com slash getindex. That's erica.com slash G-E-T-I-N-D-E-X. And remember, Erica is always with a K. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. And now back to the episode. You talk a lot about this concept of broke decisions versus million-dollar decisions. Can you explain the difference? Yes. The difference is abundance, right? Making a decision that takes you towards your dreams, towards what you want, that feels expansive and like growth and like opportunity versus broke decisions 
in my view, are decisions rooted in scarcity. At my conference in January, Sonia Renee Taylor spoke. And one of the things that she said was that every story about scarcity is a lie. And I'm telling you, like, I can't stop thinking about that quote. And I think it's so true. So I think broke decisions is when we let scarcity rule our decision making and therefore say, well, I got to save the money instead of investing in myself. You know, I can't buy that thing that makes me feel good. I can't spend that time doing what I want to do. We're very miserly with ourselves, our time, our money, our energy, and therefore we don't get what we want. So if you want to become a millionaire, you got to start making million dollar decisions that create growth and opportunity. And, you know, saving every dollar and saving all of your time and all your energy is not going to turn you into a millionaire. What were the broke decisions that you were making early on in your career that were holding you back? Well, honestly, I was always looking for opportunity. I was always looking to invest in myself. So I was very much making decisions that my family thought were nuts. You know, <laughs> like they were like, you know, going on study abroads that I would just sign up and then go find a way to pay for it. Courses and programs and law school, like all of the things that I've done, I couldn't afford any of it, but I just found a way because I was committed to my dream and the opportunity that was on the other side of that. I think I did make broke decisions. When I was younger, um, being scared, you know, it re being ruled by fear and not putting myself out there, not asking for the sale, not networking, not asking for the internship or for the opportunity. So I think I was very timid early on and scared to really go after what I wanted. And that was a disadvantage for sure and slowed down my progress and how quickly I could become a millionaire. So what else do you think holds people back from becoming a millionaire? I think trying to do everything themselves, especially for women, because we're trained that we can do it all, right? Like be the homemaker, take care of the children, you know, also have a career, um, and be perfect at all of it and make sure you look beautiful <laughs> while you do all of it. Look beautiful, look fashionable, be attractive, right? It's just like so much pressure to perform and we have to perform in all of these different areas and we have to do it all. And I am the opposite. I don't want to do any of it, actually. <laughs> I only want to do the parts that I love and that are rooted in my talent and my strengths. And I want to not do these other things. So I think trying to do it all yourself and not asking for help and not hiring help I think is definitely holding people back. And there's even studies and stats that show that, particularly for women entrepreneurs. A lot of women entrepreneurs, when they hit that like $250,000 in revenue mark, they need to start hiring, but they don't, right? And they're slow to do it. And therefore that's why, you know, it's part of why, it's not the whole story, but it's a part of why so few of us hit seven figures and beyond because we're not hiring people, we're not delegating, we're not, assigning tasks to other people. We're like, no, I can do it all. No, you can't. <laughs> and I, it's so funny because my best friend was my client for a while before he became my, we, that's how we bonded. And he hired people literally on day one of his business. And I, I just, I was so in awe of that because it's so not what most women do. So I think if you hire a lot sooner, if you start asking for help, if you start delegating and start betting on yourself, those are the things that are going to make your path to becoming a millionaire a lot faster. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I remember when I first quit my job at the law firm, one of my goals was to start a YouTube channel. 
And right away, I decided I wasn't going to edit them myself, edit the videos myself. I hired an editor. Yes. But the thing is, I was making no money. So I was going in the hole for several months for this YouTube channel that was not profitable at all. But somehow I had it in my mind that I don't want to spend eight hours editing a video when someone else can help me do it. Exactly. And that, that process that you just talked about, that going in the hole in the beginning, that's the process that scares so many people that they're not willing to do. As we both know, the success is on the other side of that. But if you're not willing to do that, right? Like yeah. I, there's this interesting thing that the president of my company, Brittany Martin, and shared with me. She's brilliant. And it's this chart or this graph, if you will. And it's kind of like when we first start doing something, we are delusional. So we think we're amazing at it, you know? So like, we're like, I'm so good at this because we have no idea that we're bad at it. You know what I mean? And maybe it feels good to be doing something new or it's exciting or whatever. And then you keep going and then you have a failure or you have a moment where you learn, oh, I'm actually incompetent at this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now you're aware of your, before you were like unaware, therefore you felt competent. Yep. Right? And so it feels all good. And then you like drop all the way down and you're like, actually, I'm terrible at this. And now I'm going to have to work to get better. And that working to get better, that's what makes us great. Yeah. So it's like, there's always this gully before we can get to the success that we want. And if you're not willing to make it through that gully, you're not going to get to the success that you want. I think I saw the same chart, but they also said like men will stay in this like delusional phase for longer. Yes, they absolutely will, which is absolutely hilarious, but also seems to be working for them. Yeah. So it's like, I think we need to bet on ourselves more and really trust, trust our creativity, trust our eye, trust our ideas and believe that they are worthy to happen. You know what I mean? Instead of you know, oh, that's a great idea. Let me sit on it for the next, I don't know, 12 years, you know? And some people like die with those ideas and those dreams inside of them. So learning to face that fear and bet on yourself, like I'd rather crash and burn and know I gave it a shot than not try at all. And I think that's a really important part. And the the cool thing is, is that most of those ideas, when you put it out there, they're either going to be successful or you're going to learn so much that you're going to be able to turn it into a success or turn something else into a success as a result. So there's no loss, right? You're either learning or you're winning. It's yep. one or the other. Yeah. There's a stat in your book that you referenced that only 10% of millionaires are women. What do you think causes that? And then what do you think is the solution? Yeah. Well, systemic sexism, racism, <laughs> you know, has, I don't know, a little bit to do with it, you know? <laughs> We couldn't have bank accounts in the 70s or credit cards, right? We had to have like your brother or your husband or your father, you know, a man in your life had to go with you to like be able to, or you had to have his credit card. So we didn't have a lot of economic power up until very recently. And that, you know, sexism is still built into the systems. There's all kinds of stats that show that women actually always wind up paying higher interest rates on mortgages on our credit cards, right? There's all these ways. And it seems like a small thing, but it's all whittling away at our ability to amass wealth. And then we're also, you know, all of the messages to us are like, cut coupons, you know, stop buying lipstick and fashion, but make sure you look good, but also don't spend money on lipstick and fashion, right? And it's all of these messages about contracting, right? It's broke decisions. That's what the messaging is to women about money. Stop buying lattes. If I, I just want to throw something every time I hear that because, you know, not buying lattes, what is that going to save you? $1,700 a year? That is not 
going to make you a millionaire, you know? So that's whack advice. Whereas men are told, like, if it's an ad for a man, it's like a lot, a picture of a lion, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. like, step into your power, wear the watch, wear the power suit, drive the hot car, you know what I mean? And like, become your powerful self. So men are getting messages about abundance constantly. And women are told, you silly girl, you know what I mean? Cut some coupons. <laughs> and I'm like, the hell is this? There's a movie called Shopaholic. You know, it's like all of these stories, it's in our pop culture, it's everywhere. And then when women do have money, then it's the devil wears Prada, right? Then we hate her, right? Like we're like, yeah, we're rooting for you. Go, sis, go, right? And then when you're too successful. Yes, now we hate your guts. <laughs> and we're going to talk about what a, you know, terrible person you are and call you a bee behind your back. <laughs> and, you know, all of the things. So that's the society we live in as women. And I say we go get our money anyway. And what's the solution? I think the solution is us having economic power. If we have economic power, we have political power. You know, then we can, you know, support the campaigns of the politicians that actually represent our interests. And that's, to me, that's the end game, right? We live in a capitalistic society. Whether you hate it or love it, that's what we live in. And so let's play the game to our advantage, right? I love that. I think education is also big too, because I often think about when I was growing up, I really learned the frugality side. I learned how to save money and penny pinch. Yes. And when I think back to it, it's because that's all my parents really knew. Yes. Like if you don't know the other side of the equation, which is how to make money, how to invest, how are your parents able to teach you that? Exactly. Right? And the parents who can teach their kids that are already the well-off parents. And that kind of perpetuates these cycles where you're in these generational cycles of living in the same socioeconomic class. Yes, exactly. Which is why all of the finance education that is out there in the world today, all of these creators creating content around money is so powerful because then we can learn it you know, even if it wasn't in our family of origin, because it certainly wasn't for me. I mean, that's what I learned, how to make a dollar out of 15 cents, you know? And it was almost, it felt like a game to me. So I think that that was one of the things early on, like I would overdraft my account and then I'd call the bank and like, you know, convince them, you know, to give me my money back. And like, to me, I'm very good at that. Too. Yes, exactly. And like, that's where my energy was going is like saving as much as possible, getting a deal, learning how to shop bargains, you know, um, learning how to like buy secondhand everything. And it felt like a game. And I think what happened is I started to, whenever I had money, I would somehow make it go away. I couldn't hold on to it because it just felt wrong because then I couldn't play the game because what made my mother a hero to me was her ability to just continue to make things happen, keep the lights on, provide food, even though there was like nothing. And it's like, how are you even doing this? It looks so stressful, but it also was like, she's my hero. And so for me to be a hero, I had to play the same game, which meant I couldn't have money. I had to have so little and be like, I'm going to still go to law school, go on study abroad, like make all kinds of crazy stuff happen with so little. Like that's what was impressive to me. And then once I unpacked that story that I was, that was like ruling my life, I realized, oh, I'm actually making a lot more money now, but I'm making it disappear. You know what I mean? Because I, I'm not comfortable. I don't have the capacity to hold wealth. And I think that that's something we should talk about more, right? As a society, like, or go to therapy or get a life coach, right? <laughs> to like help you unpack the stories that you're telling yourself about money and how are you making them true and how are they playing out in your life right now, even though you have more. Because that's what was true for me. And once I started to figure that out, 
And it was really through coaching that I started to figure that out and forgive myself for those those stupid mistakes that I made, debt that I amassed, whatever else. And I started to grow my capacity for more. And one of the games I used to play with myself is I was like, okay, $10,000 is the new zero. So, and I was like, probably at that time, I was making like $500,000 a year in my business, but I only took home like 125. I had a small team. And so I was like, okay, if I have 10,000, I don't want to ever feel like I'm broke again. So I'm going to make 10,000 the new zero. So when my bank account has $10,000 in it, I'm going to pretend that I have nothing and act as if I have nothing, which means I cannot spend that 10,000, you know, it became like this sacred padding. And then that grew my capacity to hold money. Then once I was able to have 10, then I could grow it to 20 or 25. And then I could grow it to 100. And then I could grow it to millions that I can sit and have and not feel like I need to go spend it, Mm. you know? There's so many stories that we are replaying in our lives that we got to recognize what those stories are and start changing that behavior. I think I have the opposite problem where I still have, when it comes to myself, I have a scarcity mindset. When it comes to my business, I have an abundance mindset. So for myself, I remember being in law school and I would do things as ridiculous as to make the tissues last twice as long. I would cut each one in half So when I blow my nose, it's only half a tissue. And so like, I'm better than that now. Yes. But I'm still not great at spending money. If it's the choice between a $6 Uber ride and a $20 Uber black ride, I will always choose the Uber. Oh, that's so interesting. I will always choose the Uber black. Oh, see, (laughs) Terry, our mutual friend Terry and I, we just had a dispute about this last night because we were going to get beignets and I called an Uber for us. And apparently she hadn't been in an Uber for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, I'm never riding an Uber with you again. And on the way back, she called her Uber X or or her Uber Black. And I was thinking, why would you pay six times more for this Uber Black? We're going from point A to point B. Yeah. And she was saying about safety and all this. It's safety. It's you're getting professional drivers. You're in a nice vehicle. Have you talked to her about this? You sound just like her. I have not. (laughs) But I think we think the same way. And you know what? I know Terry has a lot of money. So (laughs) I think we should take her advice. But you have to decide what are those areas that are just worth it to you. So I always fly first class and I always do an Uber Black or even better than that is a car service like arranged for me in advance typically for when I'm traveling. But um, I'll do Uber Black if I'm just kind of running around town kind of thing. And that is, yeah, that's just a non-negotiable for me. Listen, I have a friend who's similar to you and we were in Nashville. He called the Uber and it was like this minivan that showed up. And we were all like, dad's here to come get us, you know? <laughs> we piled into the minivan. It was hilarious. But yes, I'm just kind of like, here's the other thing too. I think that the things that you experience can affect your environment. What you're experiencing can affect how you feel about yourself and your money-making abilities. And I want to feel like a boss. So I, I am not sitting in the back of the plane because that doesn't make me feel like a boss. And I'm not taking a regular Uber because that doesn't make me feel like a boss, you know? (laughs) I want to feel like a boss. So it's like, what are those things that I need in my environment? And it's, some of it is like nice clothes or, you know, um, living in a nice home. That's really important to me. Um, Those things, it's, how do I feel when I get in my car and I drive to my location and I get out of my car, right? Like, how do I feel when I'm in my home or working in my office? Those things matter. And there are studies that show how it affects us. When I had a client who was making very good money 
and she had a small kitchen and she had this one cabinet in her kitchen that she couldn't fully open because there was like another cabinet that like if <laughs> the other cabinet was open, you couldn't open this one. And it, they just sort of ran into each other. It was oh, like, I, I know exactly what you're poor talking design. about. Yeah. And she dealt with that for like years. And she was like, you know, we were talking about what makes you feel broke. And she's like, that cabinet every morning. And she said like, because of, I can't, I don't know the exact layout of it, but she wound up spilling her coffee, messing with that stupid cabinet. Then she was late getting on a call with a client because she was cleaning up the spill and she was just so annoyed. And I'm like, call a handyman and fix the damn cabinet. Like, how much is it going to cost? A couple hundred bucks to make you feel better and to save your time? It's Convenience is part of it, right? It's part of growing our capacity to do these big things that we're out here doing. You know, we're putting ourselves out here in really big, visible ways all the time. We're betting on our ideas. All of that requires so much mental capacity. I don't want to spend any of my mental capacity worried about this random Uber or being uncomfortable in economy. You know what I mean? Like, so... You wouldn't like my travel schedule. (laughs) (laughs) We just, on the way here to meet you, we flew economy second to last row because the economy premium, I don't like that they try to charge you like $17 to upgrade to economy premium. $17? (laughs) I'm or to need- choose a seat. Yeah. Okay. So like how many of your, you know, like your contract templates that you sell, right? What, how many $17 upgrades can you do from one contract template sale? <laughs> <laughs> a few. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's how you got to think about it. You know, like I remember I wanted to go on this retreat to Italy and one of my first, my first digital product was small business bodyguard. This, it was a legal product. And, um, I wanted to go on this retreat and I think it was like six grand to Italy and it was for a week and this whole experience and that I wanted to have. And so I was like, okay, how many small business bodyguards do I have to sell to do this? And it was six. So I put it on sale for the weekend, (laughs) sold 15 and was like, great, I'm taking the six grand that I made from it, putting it on this retreat and the rest I'll put into the business or do something else with it. But that's kind of how I started to think about it. But I think you've got to be willing to spend on yourself because spending actually creates wealth in a lot of ways. Even if you just think about buying assets, buying investments. Now it's like, you know, obviously there's a portion of your income that you're going to put towards things that make your lifestyle comfortable or just for your lifestyle. But then there's obviously a portion that you're going to put towards buying assets so that those assets can yield a return for you as well. And that's the goal, right? Once you hit a certain level in entrepreneurship, which is not as high as people think, you know, when, if you're making $500,000 a year or even 250, surely you have a portion of that that can go to buying assets. And then those assets make money for you. That's the goal. That's how wealth is built. It's not built on our labor. That's a lie. The labor is how you get started when you don't come from a wealthy family, right? So you do your labor, building your business, your career, whatever it is to amass a certain amount of income and to have some extra. And then you take that extra and you buy assets with it, whether it's real estate or stocks or investing in other companies, et cetera. And then those assets start to yield a return, right? And that's where the wealth is made, right? If you're well, if you want to build wealth just on your labor, you're going to burn out before you ever get there, right? But if you start building your wealth from assets, then you're going to exponentially grow your wealth and it's not going to make you exhausted to do it. That I agree with. Assets all day. Yes. The thing is, so, I mean, for me, I think 50% of our net worth is in real estate. Assets we love, we believe in. The $17 upgrade for a flight is not an asset. That is a liability. No, <laughs> it is an asset because if you arrive to your location more comfortable— and, you know, more energized, less likely to get burned out. You go and you do a podcast 
one of your best episodes ever. It goes viral, right? And all of the benefits of that happen. So that $17 becomes an amazing, you are your first asset. You are the golden goose, right? So it's yeah. like, we got to take care of the golden goose. We got to make sure the golden goose is not tired, not uncomfortable, not feeling low, right? Because how you feel definitely affects what you are able to produce. So I fly first class so that I always feel fresh and fabulous when I arrive somewhere. And I don't want to ever be on my phone thinking about who's going to come get me or getting an Uber. I have a card waiting for me. He's got my name standing there. I get in the car. I'm making calls. I'm getting things done while I'm in the car. You know what I mean? So it's just. I get it. I'll travel with you. I want to listen. <laughs> I want you to on your next flight. So the flight home from here, I want you to upgrade yourself. I hope you're loving this conversation, but I wanted to jump in to talk to you about something I think you need to know about. If you know me, you know I'm all about efficiency, tricks and tips that make everyday business tasks a breeze. Today's secret weapon turns your big ideas into a stunning online presence. If you need to build a website and you want something uniquely yours, Hostinger has got you covered. Thanks to their AI website builder, you can take your business or personal profile online without the hassle. Simply explain what you want in a few sentences and you'll have your very own website. What I love most is that Hostinger doesn't limit you with cookie cutter templates. You can choose your style, but get all the help you need with fonts, images, and layouts based on your keywords, which makes the site feel truly like yours. When I used it, the cherry on top was that thanks to AI, I even got SEO-friendly copy and an AI heat map that helps to improve user experience and conversions by showing you which areas of your website attract attention. Everything you need is included and accessible. Header, footer, contact form, images, social icons, and even a logo if you don't have one, courtesy of their AI logo maker. Not only that, but they also have e-commerce options with a 0% transaction fee and a dedicated live support team who are just a message away when you need them. If you're ready to bring your vision to life without the fuss, check out Hostinger. Right now, they're having their New Year's sale until February 12th. You can get full website building capabilities for just $2.49. Even better, head to hostinger.com slash Erica10 and get an extra 10% off the sale price at checkout with code Erica10. That's hostinger.com slash Erica10. Remember, Erica is with a K, so it's E-R-I-K-A 10. I'll put the link in the show notes. I am in business for the flight home because I got it on points. I won't pay cash. I do love points too. I mean, I love playing the points game. That's my favorite. (laughs) I barely pay for flights because I put every business expense on the Amex. Amex delivers the points. Put the points on Delta, fly Delta all the time. Never, basically, barely ever pay for a flight, you know? So yes, but I would though. (laughs) And I have when I wasn't doing that. I just paid cash and I do think it pays dividends. So I think, you know, I have some other entrepreneur friends who are in a similar place as you where like, even though they have money, they still feel they, they don't want to spend it. And I think it's all about your lifestyle and what makes you happy, right? I believe like what Ramit Sethi says about 
overspend on the areas that really matter to you and like underspend in the areas that don't. So maybe you're somebody who just really doesn't care about how you fly. And so it's not worth it for you, but maybe there's another area where that really contributes to your happiness. So you put your money there. Yeah, I think that's right. Yes. I'm curious because I think about this often where we both went to law school. In law school, you're trained to think about risk. Yes. You're a professional pessimist, essentially, right? <laughs> <It's> so true. <laughs> but yet you are so different from the typical lawyer where I feel like you only see the abundance. Did you have to rewire yourself after law school or did you kind of not think about this during law school? Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely was always assessing risk, but I don't think assessing risk means avoiding risk. To me, it's like, I loved the law because it was like, I'm assessing the risk, I know the rules, and then I can know how can I work around them or potentially break them without getting in trouble. (laughs) That's me too, that's me too. (laughs) You know? And so to me, I felt like, understanding the risk made me empowered to make the decision. You know, it's a data point. It's not the only, it's not like risk is something that we should be aware of. It's not something that we should avoid at all costs. Because I think when you try to avoid risk at all costs, you don't live, Yeah, you know, and then you die with a lot of regrets. Yeah. So I just think people are not conscious of how this is a very limited time that we are here. And whatever you want to make happen, whatever is most important to you, Stop waiting because tomorrow is literally not promised, you know? And if you've ever had someone close to you die unexpectedly like I have, you know that to be true. And so I think one of the best things that we can do is hold that in our hearts every day and use that to help us say, okay, there's this risk, but there's also this other risk that I die with this dream inside of me, that I never see the things that I wanted to make happen, that I never get to a place where I have more free time to spend with the people that I love or whatever it is, or I never see this project that means the most to me come to fruition, right? So I think a lot about the word passion too, which basically means to suffer. And so it's like those things that you're willing to suffer for, sometimes it's suffering through taking that risk and having that fear about things going bad. Or sometimes the thing does, the bad thing does happen. You know, like I've definitely been through a lot in my business and had a lot of challenges over 13 years, but I always know I come out the other side and I'm so committed to the mission that I'm just going to keep going. I don't care even if it's You know, I've been talked about all over the internet and gotten hate mail and had failed launches and team members steal from me and, you know, any number of things that have happened along the way. But the reason why I'm just so steadfast, because this is my assignment, this is what I'm meant to do. I'm willing to suffer for it, just like I'm willing to enjoy the benefits of it as well. I think that's, that's what we have to keep fresh in our minds all the time. And I think it helps us to combat this idea that there's a risk, so I can't do it. No, it's there's a risk. So how can I shore myself up to avoid that risk happening as much as possible and then let go? That's good. And something you said about assessing risk, I think there's a big difference between calculated risk and careless risk. Yes. Calculated risk implies that you have thought about the risk and you've assessed it and you've carefully come to the decision that whatever path you want to go. And I was also thinking there's a risk to not acting as well. Yes. Like if you hate your job, the risk of staying at your job is something you have to consider. Most people say, oh, it's the risk. What's the risk of leaving my job? But what is the risk of staying at your job, being with a boss that you don't like, not having control over your time, not being able to spend time with your family members who may not be healthy anymore? Like, Yes, exactly right. And I think people don't realize how much having a job you hate can impact how you feel about yourself and how you just approach life every day. Like, you know, I've had family members who 
were very cranky and just came home like grumpy every day because they hated their job. And then that affected their personal relationships, you know, because your people have to deal with that every day. And you're never like being your best self because you're in this thing that drains you. So I don't know. I feel like why doesn't everyone believe that they deserve better than that? I don't understand that. Yeah. What was the most calculated risk that you've taken in your life? The most calculated. Um, (laughs) Calculated is funny. I have no idea how calculated it is. I guess probably the biggest one was going from having a job to entrepreneurship. I was clerking for a judge after law school, and which is a very safe role. I didn't make a lot of money. I learned a lot. I loved my judge that I worked for, and it was a great job. I spent that entire year studying starting my own practice and what would that look like and who do I need to know and who are the mentors that I could create relationships with so that I could call them when I got a case that I was overwhelmed by or whatever it was. So I would say that's the most calculated because I spent the most time learning about it, digging in, studying it before I made the leap. And it was really because of the setting that I was in. I had a clerkship. It's a one-year clerkship. When you're done, you get kicked out and the next clerk comes in. So I didn't have the option to stay. I did have other jobs offered to me and I turned them down. And my mother was very disappointed because she's like, what in the hell? I wasn't the point to get a job. (laughs) And I'm like, look, I'm already broke, right? I'm already used to struggling financially as a student. So why don't I just stay in that mode and build this business up? So that was great foresight. And I'm glad that I was willing to bet on myself in that way. But I think that was the most calculated because I took the most time. Now I do not take a year to think about anything. Mm. (laughs) Um, And maybe that's not true. Like we recently launched a business coach certification. I had that idea three years ago, but I wasn't really ready to act on it. It's not so much that I was researching it. It was really like the timing didn't feel right. And then when it did feel right, I did about... I don't know, a week worth of thinking about it and calculating it and deciding how it would fit in my business model. And and I did talk to some advisors in my life and some team members, and then I just took the leap. So now I, I think the velocity with which we make decisions is really, really important to the growth pattern, right? And the growth plan. If you take forever to make a decision, you got to think about it and study it and ask everyone under the sun their opinion before you take action. It really just slows down the learning or the win. You know, like, what if this thing could be a huge hit? What if you had not started your podcast? Can you imagine? Like, it's such a hit in such a short period of time. So, you know, we got to be willing to, like, just take the leap and try it and see everything as an experiment. That's what helps me. It's like, this is an experiment. I'm going to try it and see if it works. I'm not committing forever. I'm committing for this period of time. And I'm going to try it and see what happens. And then based on what happens, I'm going to trust that I'll make a right decision of whether to continue or not. So I think that helps me to know that like, just because I'm trying something doesn't mean I have to do it forever. Just because you're quitting to go um, start a business, you could decide, you know what, this isn't for me and go back to getting a job. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be forever. So take some of the pressure off these decisions. They don't have to be like a lifelong decision. I think that's right. I think the exact same way about most things I do in year-long terms. So even the podcast, my commitment was I will create one episode per week for 52 weeks. At 52-week mark, I'll make an assessment. If I'm still loving it, if I'm still enjoying it, I'll keep going. Yes. YouTube was the same thing. One video a week for 52 weeks. Because I something about 52 weeks to me is special because I feel like most people will set one month or three month oh, timelines. Yeah, it's too short. And that's not enough time to really assess whether something could be successful and bring you yes. joy. 
But a year is kind of enough time to really be able to make an honest assessment of, is this going the right path? Am I still happy doing this? Yes. I think it's a, I agree with that. I think we have to commit for longer. We don't have to commit forever. But some things, a year is not enough. Like, Mm. for example, I have a big conference that I launched. Um, I did it for the first time this year in, in January called ROI The Millionaire Summit. And that in one year, like it, we lost money the first year, you know? So if I was like, well, it was a huge hit. Everybody loved it. It was an incredible time. And it was incredible community camaraderie, all of the things. Um, even our speakers, you know, as a speaker, I usually fly in and leave immediately. And that's what my friends who are speakers and other people I know do. Speakers I didn't even know were staying for the whole rest of the conference. Like these were all just different signs that this was really special. And so I'm like, okay, I'm definitely doing it again. And so what I've committed to is I'm going to do it for three years. And after three years, I'll assess, is it moving in the direction that we want it to be moving? Um, And does it have momentum? So like some things will take longer. And I think that's the other thing is like when you can make bets and you can wait it out, like think about companies who have to do, you know, five or 10 years of R&D before they can even launch the thing and make their first dollar. But sometimes those are the companies that exponentially grow, right? So how long are you willing to suffer for the thing that you are excited about and the thing that you want to do? I think that matters, you know? Um, But yeah, I think with most things, a month is not enough. Three months is probably not enough. You need to give it enough time for people to find it, for people to interact with it, for for you to experience highs and lows, you know? I I like the 52 weeks. Yeah. And something you said about momentum is right too, because even for the podcast, I remember the first nine months, I didn't want to take on sponsors because I really wanted to show people that I'm here for the right reasons. I'm here to help you learn through this longer form content. Listen, making money can be a right reason too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But after the first nine months, I think I was $100,000 in the hole with this podcast. Yes. So then I was like, okay, we need to take on a few sponsors so I can pay the team and everything. Yes. Profitability, I don't think is my first thing I look at when I'm deciding whether something is, I'm going to continue it past the 52 weeks. I think it's momentum is a big one. Yes. Am I still having fun? I did not quit my job at the law firm to do things that I resent. I agree. If you start to resent something, then you really need to think like, is this worth it? Even if you may be making a lot of money with it. I completely agree. I um, have this framework that I teach my clients called Million Dollar Offer. And one of the pieces of the framework, it's a four-part framework, but one of the pieces that always surprises people is that it has to be enjoyable. And they're like, what the hell does that have to do with making a million dollars? I'm like, everything. Because if you're not enjoying it, if it doesn't feel like it's matching your talents, if you don't feel like this is something that you are good at or can get good at, and you're not enjoying showing up to do it every day, you're going to peter out before you hit a million. And before you, you know, even if you hit a million, it's going to be through brute force and discipline, not because you're loving it. I think what we produce when we love something is so much greater. Like the energy is just completely, you suddenly have energy to do way more things when you love it than when you hate it, you're like, oh, I'm exhausted, you know, from an hour of effort. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So I think enjoyment is huge and it it fits perfectly into somebody's plan to make something profitable and make it make money. If you're loving it, it, you just have to figure out how can I monetize this? What's, What's the business model behind it? So find the thing that you love and then say, okay, how do I make this match a need in the marketplace as well? You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. 
I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. For you, I know the magic number is seven, seven figures, a million dollars a year. Yes. What do you think people need to do in order to get there? I think they need to have a million dollar offer. So I believe in one offer can make you seven figures, not, you know, you have to have 28 offers to make a million dollars. I think people make it too complicated, make themselves too busy. You're like, you know, one person and an assistant, you know, if that, and they have 17 offers. And it's like, dude, (laughs) it's a lot of offers to deliver with one person, you know? So I don't think that that is realistic. I think one main offer that is scalable That means that you can sell enough of it realistically to get you to seven figures, right? Like the numbers make sense. So if you have a 50 cent offer, you need 2 million people, right? To make a million dollars. Can you realistically get in front of 2 million people? Are you the type of content creator and audience builder where that's going to be something that you can do in a relatively short period of time? Or do you need to charge more than 50 cents? Right. So it's like you got to do the math one way or the other. Do I have the numbers audience wise or do I have the numbers price wise? So just thinking through the math on it and saying this thing that I love to do, this client that I'm serving, this problem that I'm solving, how can I make that a business model that generates seven figures? Period. Just one offer. I think that's step one. Step two is you got to be willing to spend the time and work the plan. And put yourself out there. Ask for the sell, market yourself, like get comfortable selling. A lot of people are very uncomfortable, like 
asking for the sale. And I'm like, I have no problem doing that because I know that the things that I have created are changing people's lives. So people are coming in at zero and leaving with eight figure businesses, even like exceeding expectations. And so I know that it works. So I'm like, why would I not be like, look, yes, I'm trying to convince you to do it because I know how much it's going to help you. I used to be you. And it was these things that I did that I'm going to help you do faster that are going to get you there. So obviously you need to get in here. And this is an economic arrangement. I can't show up and do this work for free because then how would I pay my bills? So <laughs> I need you to pay so that I can deliver for you, you know? So I think people think it's like a nasty thing and it's not. It's the transaction is a beautiful thing. It's an exchange of value. And it's everyone saying, I think you're worth it, you know, to each other. You're worth my time and I'm worth their money, you know. So anyway, I think those are some of the things that you got to figure out what you're good at. Create a million dollar offer based on that and then work that plan. Make sure you're delegating. Uh, make sure you're keeping your eye on the money and just show up and deliver every day. And if you get two clients, act like it's 200, you know? And then when you get 200 clients, go out there and find 2,000 and just keep going. I think the other thing too is not changing the plan because that's what a lot of people do. Like, I'm gonna, this didn't work as well as I wanted to in day five. So now <laughs> I'm going to do this completely other different thing. I'm gonna build that thing. That one doesn't get momentum fast enough either. So now I'm gonna go and pivot and do this other thing. Nothing wrong with pivoting, but like if you're pivoting multiple times in a year, you're not committing and you've got to commit. You've got to show up consistently before you're ever going to see returns on that thing. So probably the commitment and the consistency is the biggest thing. And then making sure you've got that million dollar offer that you keep just keep showing up for. Let's dig into the offer because I think for a lot of people, one, they're not even sure what an offer is or how to construct it or how to know what the right offer is. So how do you think about those things? What is an offer, first of all? Yes. Well, an offer is you just putting something out there. That's what puts you in business, right? You have either a product you're creating or a service that you're delivering, some experience or, or product where you're offering it and people need to pay you in order to have it. So that's what an offer is. And just as an example, I'll put mine out there. My very first offer online, it was called The Legal Bundle. It was all online business owners, they need a privacy policy, terms and conditions, and a disclaimer for their website. So I put together this set of templates where it was do it yourself, fill in the blanks. And then I put that online for $97. Yes. And that was three years ago. And I'm still making thousands of dollars a month from it. Yes, exactly. What was your first offer? My first offer was um, legal services. So hire me to form your business, your LLC or your S-Corp to draft contracts between you and your employees, to register your trademarks, to register your copyrights. So all of those sort of small business legal items that people need, I sold it as a service. So they would come to me and say, I need a contract or I need to form my business or I have this licensing deal on the table and I need a lawyer to represent me in it. And I would say, okay, that's going to cost X, Y, Z. And then I'd work with them until the work was done. So that was my first offer was a legal service. Amazing. Okay, so then how do you think about constructing it? Yes. So when you're constructing an offer, you're going to start with who is the person that you are targeting, right? Who's your ideal client? And what is the problem that they have? And what is the solution that you have for it? And that's the key. And nowadays with the internet, I mean, we can really stalk our ideal client and know what they're thinking, know what they're needing, know what their struggle is, know what language they're using to talk about it. So it's the tools that we have available to figure out who our ideal client is and, and know what they need is amazing. And so you just figure out that ideal client. This is who I'm serving specifically. It's not like, 
all women over 25. That's too broad, right? So being more specific, it could be all women over 25 who have an online business and aren't a lawyer. You know, like you could start there or have an online business and sell a service or sell a product on a website, right? Or have a retail business or whatever. You can get more and more specific about who your target is. And I think honestly, in a lot of cases, the more specific, the better. And so once you know who that is and what their problem is, then you say, okay, here's the solution that I can provide for it. And your solution is the offer. So that's all it is. And when I'm thinking about an offer, I'm thinking about my ideal client and what they need. And then I start like just drafting what are the different elements of this offer that I'm going to deliver. So like with the legal services, it would be I had an online platform that they could communicate with me in a secure environment and they could send me messages 24-7. And then they could also set up calls with me. That was part of the offer. And then they would pay X amount for, for example, a contract might be $2,500. Or they could pay me $2,500 a month and I'll handle the contract and all the other legal issues I've identified from our first consult, you know, that they have that I can take care of for them. And they pay $2,500 a month over the course of a year and they'll have all of this legal stuff handled for them. And, And they have me on call as their sort of outside counsel. So that's how I structured the offer because I was like, yes, they need the contract, but they also need a lawyer they can call whenever they need them. They also need these other things. So how can I construct an offer where I'm now getting recurring revenue from it instead of getting paid once? And so I had, it was called like, you know, an annual program. It wasn't like super clever, but that's how I did it in my law practice so that I had recurring revenue. So that's how I came up with the offer. It was like, what does the client need and what do I need? And what are the bits, right, that get us there? And then how did you go about marketing it now that you've identified who your ideal audience is? How do you find them? Yes. So then you just say, okay, where are they at? Are they at, you know, certain conferences? Are they hanging out in this Facebook group? You know, are they going to see an Instagram ad? Could I start a YouTube channel and attract them that way? Like people who are Googling, you know, how to register a trademark or how to name your company or, you know, just creating content with things that they are asking, you know? And so those are all different you just brainstorm, like, what are the, where are the places that they're showing up and how can I get myself there and in front of them? And that's it, really. And then you just start doing it and you just start selling it. And then every time you get a customer, you can say, do you know anybody else who could use my services? Can you make, a, make an intro, right? In the early days, it's always referrals that gets you your first customers. So I know now you are making over eight figures in your business, over $10 million. What was that trajectory like for you from leaving the clerkship? I guess it's a, a 10 or 11 year period from le- quitting, you know, or leaving my my first clerkship, like my last job that I had and getting to eight figures in revenue. And honestly, a lot of it was because of me, because of my own head trash, my own fears where I slowed myself down. But yes, that journey was basically I built my law practice and I focused on growing that. And I was serving mostly entrepreneurs in the practice. And what I found is a lot of them were asking me for business advice because my business was growing. I had a team. I was doing things that they weren't doing yet. And so they would ask for my advice and I'd give it to them. And then a mentor told me they should be paying you for that business advice instead of you giving it for free. And so I'm like, really? Because I'm thinking like I'm licensed to practice law. That's the only thing that I could sell. Like I created this rule in my head. I couldn't sell anything else because I'm not licensed to do it. I didn't go to 50,000 years of school for it. So I can't sell it. And my mentor's like, uh, no, the people want it and you've got it. So go sell it. And so I just dabbled in it and tried that. And more and more people kept coming to me. And so 
I was like, okay, I'm going to take on a couple of clients on the side selling business coaching and see how it goes. And those first few clients, I mean, just massive exponential growth. So I was like, oh, I'm actually good at this. <laughs> and then I slowly transitioned. It was like probably a two-year period where I was winding down my law practice, taking less and less clients and taking more and more business coaching clients. And then I tried every type of offer all at the same time. So like courses and short-term eight-week programs and VIP days and retreats and one-on-one -on -one clients and masterminds. I mean, I did every kind of coaching offer that I could come up with and sold it all and got really tired and was like, this sucks. And so I decided I'm going to streamline this and I'm going to focus on the clients that I love the most, which are the clients who want to grow, who are very ambitious and who want to get to seven figures. Mm -hmm. So that's when I created Hello7. And that instantly was a million dollar company in year one because I had an audience from the law practice that I could sort of parlay some of them into the business. Plus, I had also been an entrepreneur for seven years at that point. So I had a lot of experience growing the law practice that I could bring to the business coaching, you know, company. And then that just grew really quickly from, you know, we did, you know, a million dollars in the first year for Hello7. Then we grew to two million and then we went from two to five, five to 10. So we doubled twice, which was a very hard time because scaling the business and scaling the team, I had to learn how to do that. And it was challenging. <laughs> Lots of leadership and management lessons and process and systems lessons during that time. But yeah, it grew really quickly once I figured out. And so that's the other thing too, is like sometimes you start out doing this one thing and maybe that's not your forever thing, but it's leading you to your forever thing. Yeah. What is a piece of advice that you wish someone would have given you in year one that would have accelerated your trajectory to eight figures? I wish I would have talked to someone who gave me permission to do what I really wanted to do on day one you know, and to like bet on myself and trust that I have the experience. It's also like specifically around raising my prices because I think I sold myself short because I didn't think I was worth it, you know? And so it felt safer to charge lower prices. But lower prices mean you have less to pay yourself, less to invest, which means that, you know, what you can offer is less. So it like the economics of your business are massively impacted by your price. Like if there's one piece of advice that people take away from this podcast, it could be just double your price. If you raise your price, you are going to exponentially grow your business. Just that one action. If you do nothing else, and I don't mean, because this is what people do, I don't mean raise your price and then dump a whole bunch of new stuff into the offer because that's not raising your price, right? That's creating a whole new offer. Um, raising your price is saying, the thing that I'm offering right now, I'm not going to change anything about it, except I'm going to raise the price and decide that it's worth more. Um, and attract the clients who are willing to pay more for that specific offer. So I think that is the most game-changing advice anybody could get. And if you take action on it, you're going to see your company grow. You will fall over. That legal bundle that I told you about that I now sell for $97, when I first sold it, I sold it for $9. Wow. Because my mentality was like, I want to help as many people as possible. And if I make it affordable to everyone, then everyone can get it and protect themselves legally. Well, here's the truth of the matter. When people pay $9, they pay the $9, it sits in their inbox or on their hard drive and they never take action on it. When people pay an amount that is commensurate with the value of the thing, they give it more attention, right? So when they pay, they pay attention. So you're actually not helping anyone by undercharging because then they you're devaluing it, so they're devaluing it. And therefore they often do not get the result, right? It's just like, think about like, if you have a really beautiful piece of art right? Like how you handle it and how you ask, you know, like 
you don't want anyone to touch it and you hang it on the wall just so or you frame it. Or if you, even if you have a nice piece of clothing, like you always put it on the hanger and you dry clean it instead of throwing it in the laundry, right? Whereas things that are less expensive, you're like balling it up and throwing it in the, in the laundry basket, right? And not being too precious with it. So when we pay more for things, we pay more attention to it and therefore we can get more value from it. So I think it's important that there's a right relationship with money, which is that if the value is commensurate with the thing. So like your legal templates are protecting them from, you know, getting in trouble with the FTC and um, making sure they have solid terms with their customers that might try to sue them or get a refund or something like that. Like there's a lot of things that you're protecting them from. And if you think about like the years of education you had to do to be in a position plus to pass the bar, right. To be able to, protect them in that way and making it on demand. Like there's so many conveniences and so much value that is happening with those templates that $9 does not, it's not commensurate with the value. So if there is a $9 template out there, right? It's like, yeah. And if you see mine is a hundred or 500, then you're like, well, why is this one 500? It's almost like you trust it more because it costs more and because it's valued a certain way. So I think undercharging doesn't really do anybody any, it doesn't do you any favors. It doesn't do your customer any favors either because I want to treat my customers to the highest experience possible. And I can't do that if they're paying like the lowest price, you know? I don't have time. I can't answer their questions in our inbox, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I have to staff, the, I have a customer service team answering questions. I would not be able to do that if I didn't charge them like what it actually costs to run this business. You know what I mean? And provide that value. Okay, this is my sign. I will be raising my legal bundle prices. <laughs> yes, let's so you go. Have to, you have to get it now. <laughs> yes, a minimum of double it is my is my rule. Because often we're undercharging so much that even doubling it still doesn't get us to the value that it actually is. Mm. And I think that's true in your case. I think that's something that stops a lot of people though, is like, how do I price my item now that I have my offer? So yes. how do you think about pricing though? I know you're saying double it, but double it from what if it's their first offer? Well, if it's your first offer, what I like to tell people to do is think about what is the result that the person gets. I think we overemphasize the offer. No one cares about the offer. Like no one is actually buying a template and no one is actually buying business coaching and getting on a call with me. What they're actually buying is a seven-figure business. What they're buying is peace of mind and not having to worry about that legal issue, right? And so think about what is it that they are actually buying? What is the actual result that they're going to get from working with you and from getting your thing and then price according to that value, right? What is peace of mind worth in this regard, right? What is a seven-figure business worth to them and price accordingly? Another question I'm sure people are going to have is how do you even know if the product, the offer you're creating is something that people want? Yes. Well, a lot of times we're our own test cases. You know, I think about what did I need on my entrepreneurial journey? What did I want? What was I looking for? And so I create things that are consistent with that, you know, that are fulfilling a need that I had myself. So it's often there, but it also could be, here's this group of people that I really want to help. And here's where they keep getting stuck, right, on whatever journey that they're on. So how can I provide a solution to that point of stuckness and make it easy? A great example is like cloth diapers. I have... Um, four kids. And so we had cloth diapers with my three little ones. And, you know, the mom that created that business was like, okay, cloth diapers used to be like a piece of cloth and you'd fold it a certain way and you'd 
pin it to your baby. And it sounded real precarious, right? I'm sure there were spills that were not good, you know? (laughs) And then this mom was like, how can I get a cloth diaper that's better for the environment, that's better for my baby's skin, but that has the convenience of a like disposable diaper, you know? And so then she created a cloth diaper that was like, looked just like a disposable diaper, except it was made out of cloth and it had snaps and you could like insert like additional layers of protection, you know, as your baby got older. And it was like, you could size it different ways so that your, you know, very small baby could use it, but then even at two years old, they could still be using it. So it's just like the most genius idea, right? And she's probably just a mom who was like, I wanted that. So she created it. And so I think that's some of the best ways is when you are sort of this test subject or you fit the ideal client, it's very obvious. But also you could also just look in the marketplace and see what are people asking for? What are people talking about? What's a struggle that you've noticed that people experience that you have the expertise or can get the expertise to solve for them? I think in many cases too, it's also a good idea to pre-sale your offer Mm -hmm. to make sure that there's demand. Because a lot of times when you ask people, hey, do you like my idea? They're going to say yes. Yes. But then when you ask them to pull out their wallet, then there's the hesitation. Exactly. I always have liked pre-selling items to see if there is the demand. And then if there is, then I create it. Rather than spending eight, nine, 12 months creating this thing that in your head is a great offer, but then by the time you've put all of this work in, you realize, oh, maybe there's not actually a market demand for this. Exactly right. You can do market research, like set up calls with people and kind of get information about, you know, that fit your target market and then get information about, you know, what they're struggling with or where they need help. And that's valuable. But I don't think there's anything more valuable than pre-launching. And that's what I teach in my programs as well. So they come up with their offer and then it's like, okay, put it out there and sell it. And, and let them know it'll be delivered in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. So you give yourself a window to actually build the thing, you know, um, depending on what it is. Not everything can be built in 90 days, but a lot of things can. So pre-selling is, and pre-launching is the way to go for sure because you put it out there and then when that first person gives you money, you're like, oh, this is it. And then when that third or fifth person gives you money, you're like, oh, this is really it, you know? And you start to trust that that is a good idea and then you spend the time, just like you say. So I, I love pre-launching. That is always what I have done in my business. When I created my first digital product, Small Business Bodyguard, we had like a wait list of people waiting. We talked a lot about it. People pre-purchased it. And then when we delivered it, it was all this fanfare and then a lot more people bought it, you know? So highly recommend that because otherwise you're spending a lot of money and making a big bet. So it's like mitigating that risk. How do you think about as you've scaled hiring and managing a team? And what are some of the mistakes that you think people make at the very beginning? One of the top mistakes people make is hiring people they like. You know, yes, it's great if you like them, but that is not a reason to hire anyone. (laughs) You want to hire people that can show up and do the work. So you want to see things on their resume, like have they worked from home before and been able to be productive? For example, if you have a remote team or have they done the kind of daily work that you are looking for, because that's the stuff. It's like, what does their daily work life look like? And can you match what's on their resume, what their daily work life used to be to the daily work life that you need them to do for you? Because that matters so much and people don't realize it. And so you could hire somebody who, let's say, has never worked in a remote environment. Now they're working from home and they're miserable because there's nobody there and they don't feel as productive. And it just doesn't, even though they have the skills, it's not working for them. So really understanding what is the daily task and the daily feeling of doing this job entail 
communicating that during the interviewing process, understanding how they're accustomed to working and making sure that that's something that they're not just saying they can do, but that you've seen that they've done, I think is very important. Hiring for the skills that you lack, you know? So like, I'm not super detail oriented. Well, I am sometimes, but I'm more big picture visionary type person. So I'm not good at like, the project management and the operations. Like I've gotten better at it because I've done it for so long, but I really don't enjoy that part. And so hiring other people to run the operations of my business was like a top priority because those are the things I'm not good at. So making sure you're sort of filling in your gaps. You don't want to hire people who have the same exact skill set as you, right? You want to hire people who can bring something to the table, like where you're lacking, they can shore that up. And that way everybody's loving their job because they're doing something that they like, you know, there are people on my team who like live for project management to like organizing Notion is like their dream, you know? (laughs) And they love to like plan and organize and project manage. And that's my personal nightmare, you know? So they love their job doing something that the company absolutely needs. And I love my job doing, you know, what the company needs that aligns with my strengths. So we ask everyone to do strengths finders, DISC. There might be another one or two. We always want to get their um, personality assessments because we want to make sure that this job actually matches their natural strengths and talents because we want everybody to love their job at Hello7. We don't want people to come work for our company and absolutely hate the work that they're doing. It used to make me laugh, like the people who would um, apply for executive assistant type roles, right? Very detail-oriented. You have to be very organized. There's a lot of tasks to manage and keep on top of. And it'd be people who have like my profile, you know, and my profile on disc, for example, is DI. And so it's like very people oriented and command, like leading, you know, and bringing order to chaos, that kind of thing. But like their detail orientation, which is C, is like super, super low. And I'm like, you're going to, first of all, hate this job. You're going to have to like, you know, morph yourself into someone else to actually do this job successfully. (laughs) So it's like, I don't want to hire someone who's going to hate it, you know? And it's, it's not that that's not the only point of data we use, but it's a point of data we want to have and have discussions about to make sure that we're matching people with the actual role that, that they would love. So I think those are some things that people need to do and like make your interviewing process tougher. I think people will make it too easy. And you're, listen, you're betting no matter what. You cannot really know a person and know if they can be successful in, you know, an hour-long interview. So taking some steps. The other thing that we do is we do a test task. So we have them do some project that is similar to the kind of work that they would be doing. And we pay them to do it as part of the interview process just so we can see a little bit of their work product. And that's another point of data. So like lengthening the process a little bit because people wait until they are so desperate before they hire, right? And before they put the job description out there, that by the time they're advertising it, they would just take anyone who's breathing and has a pulse to do this job. And then they do it for a couple of months. And then you realize, you know, they're not good at it. But now the whole team is attached to them. So now it's going to create drama when you have to let them go, you know? (laughs) So the other thing I would say too is hire for values. I've always prioritized values over skill set. Like, You may not have all the skills in the world, but if you share my values, if you share the values of the company, that's what's going to keep us aligned and showing up. I can train people to do things, but you can't teach values or can't change someone's beliefs. What are your values? Our values are community. Our values are equity and equality. And that means that, you know, every person of color, every queer person, every person with a disability, that we should all have every woman, we should all have an even playing field and an opportunity to build wealth. And, you know, creating that environment and making sure that we are focused on that 
is huge for us. So that that's our mission, right? To close the gender and racial wealth gaps one entrepreneur at a time by helping each entrepreneur build a seven-figure business. So that's our top value. We also value autonomy, right? And personal responsibility. So when someone on my team comes to me and says, I'm really busy, I don't see that as my problem. I see that as their problem. What are you doing to organize your, your work? Who are you asking on the team to help you with this project, right? Like, what are you doing to solve that problem? It's not just I'm busy and the leader needs to fix it for me. No, use your noggin, right? <laughs> like, you're smart, you're capable, um, be strategic and think about how you can manage your time better to get these things done. Or, right, if it's not possible to get done, say that and let's talk about it. Who do you need to help you with this project, right? Being more, I want to train my team to be more vocal and say, here's what I need. I can bang this out if I have these resources. Because then I'm like, here you go. Here's the resources you need. Let's make it happen, you know? So having personal responsibility, owning what you own, if you take responsibility for something, that's your baby. You're going to get all the prizes and all the spoils when you win. If you lose, you take responsibility for that part too, you know? And I do the same thing. So those are some of the values that we have at our business. It's about, you know, creating a work environment that I couldn't find for myself that I want to have. So we have an amazing culture and it took a lot of wrestling and hiring wrong people and having to figure it out. But now we do employee NPS, which is your net promoter score, where you can have your team rate you, right? Which we do all the time. And our last NPS score was like 75, which is a really, really high score. And so that is the thing that I'm most proud of, of having an incredible culture for people to work at. I've never heard of the NPS. I should do that. Yes, it's ENPS. So there's NPS, Net Promoter Score, which is for your clients. We do that too, so that our clients can rate us and tell us how we're doing and where we can improve. And then we have an ENPS, which is where your employees rate you. And so they're always giving us feedback and they give us feedback of like, I wish we had this or I wish we were doing that. And then we go and do it, you know? So I think that's one of the best ways is like you're in relationship with all of these people. You're in relationship with your team. You're in relationship with your customers. Ask them for feedback. Ask them how you can do better. I already know a lot of people are going to be listening to this so inspired saying, I want to become a millionaire too. So what are the three steps that you want them to follow to become a millionaire? Yes. Ooh, I love this question. So step one is an exercise I call million dollar vision, where you ideate on what do you want for your life? So whether it's, you know, for me, I'll name some of the things that I wanted. I wanted a nicer house. I wanted to be able to send my kids to extracurricular activities like violin and things like that. And they were all so expensive. Um, I wanted to be able to save more and invest. I wanted to be able to um, cover my mom's rent so she didn't have to stress. Um, so those were some of the things that I wanted. And so I did them. I like looked at everything that I wanted. I created a list and then I did the math. How much does each of these things cost me on a monthly basis? Right. And so when I did all of the math, this is the first time that I did this many years ago. And I needed to earn $300,000 a year or $30,000 a month to have the things that I wanted. At the time, I was making $100,000 a year. So I needed to make about, you know, which is, let's say, approximately $10,000 a month. So I needed to make $20,000 a month. That was the gap. That was the difference. And so once I did that, that was step one. Like, okay, I need to make $20,000 more a month. Now I have a specific financial target that I want to hit. And it doesn't have to be the million first, right? Like, Baby step your way there from wherever you're at now. So I was at 100. I wanted to get to 300, $20,000 gap. 
So then step two was I started brainstorming ideas to say, okay, what ideas do I have that could help me make $20,000 a month? And I just came up with all of these ideas. And that's where Small Business Bodyguard came from, right? That's where some of my brainstorming actually helped me come up with things that I could do, you know, being an attorney, right? What skills do I have? What could I sell that would help me close that gap? You know, that was that million dollar vision exercise. And I kind of made a mistake because I said step two, but it's really all part of one exercise. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part one is you figure out what you want and then you put a price tag on it and then you start brainstorming your ideas. Then the next thing that I want people to do is to assess their skill set. What did people always tell you you were great at as a child, right? What are you naturally drawn to? Take some assessment like DISC and Colby and Strength Finders and figure out like, what is your skill set? How do you add talent to the world, right? We're all talented. We're all skilled. And we need to know what those skills are, right? We are our greatest asset. So we need to know this asset really well so that we understand how you can build wealth. So understand what skills you have. And then you can take those skills, match it to that brainstorming list and say, which thing makes the most sense that I could use to start to make more money? And then step three is you just launch the offer, put it out there, right? And what I recommend that people do is you all know people. So even if you have a zero social media following, if you don't have a mailing list, if you don't have like a huge professional network, you know people, you know people from college, right? You know, neighbors, you know, your friends, um, your parents, friends, your aunts and uncles, and you just create a list of a hundred people that know you. And then you send them all either an email or a snail mail postcard, which is what I did from Vistaprint way back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) And you send them all a postcard and say, hey, I have a new business. This is my offer. I would love for you to work with me. Or if you know someone who could work with me, please send me a referral. And that is how I got my first few clients, right? So that is the process. First, figure out what it is that you want and what's that number that you're trying to hit. And then figure out what your skill set is. And then put that offer out there and announce it to everybody that you know. And that's going to get you on the path to getting to seven figures. I think it's also important to build a community as you're going through those three steps that can inspire you, that can motivate you, that maybe has already been on that path before you, right? Yes. In my book, I have a whole chapter called Million Dollar Squads because it is that important. There is all of this data that shows that your community and who you spend time with is definitely going to affect whether or not you're going to be successful. 95% of our success or failure can be predicted based on who we spend time with. So you have to be in community with other people who are ambitious, who are, you know, trying to build businesses, trying to build wealth, trying to achieve the kind of same success that you're going for. People who, when you tell them your idea, they're going to be like, that's amazing. Go for it. How can I help? Instead of people who are going to be like, you're crazy. Don't do that. Don't quit your day job, right? That's why we started the club, which is our community that is all about, you know, lifting each other up and supporting each other. We share wins, we share losses. Um, There's education in there, there's weekly coaching. And it's the community though, that is truly the magic where everybody is holding each other accountable and cheering each other on. It's wild how much faster you will go if you are surrounded by people who are out there doing it. So we have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Rachel Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, Rachel taught me this? I want them to say, Rachel taught me that making money is easy and the rest is just drama. Love it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. 
Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.